to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today's guest is Elizabeth Lewis from McDermott, Will & Emery. Elizabeth spoke to us from her office in Chicago. We discussed her transition to being the firm's pro bono and community service partner, the firm's pro bono program, pioneering pro bono efforts on behalf of LGBT and Sikh individuals, and more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Elizabeth, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Well, we're really excited to speak to you. Let's jump right in. Could you tell us about you? Tell us about your background. Sure. Um, so I, I'm a McDermott lifer. I am a Chicago lifer, actually. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I went to Northwestern University for undergraduate, Loyola University Chicago for law school. Um, and I have been at McDermott since I, since I graduated from law school. Um, I started out in our tax department, and I was in our tax department for a little over 10 years before making the move to be our full-time pro bono partner. Um, But pro bono is, you know, always very much a part of my day-to-day practice while at McDermott, and from a pretty junior level, I was on the pro bono committee and eventually became one of the co-chairs of the pro bono committee in Chicago, and so, um, you know, when the position of of pro bono partner opened up, it was just sort of seemed like a a once-in-a-career opportunity for me to be able to take on that role and take on that role at a firm that I'd practiced at for 10 years and really love. Great. We're going to drill down into a lot of that. So you are, as you mentioned, a Chicago lifer. So are you Cubs or White Sox? I am White Sox, actually, but... I am, by virtue of my husband, a Cubs season ticket holder, so I I appreciate the Cubs as well and was happy for him and all of the Cubs fans when they won the World Series last year, for sure. Oh, fantastic. A mixed marriage. That's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. <laughs> well, we, we'll yeah. see what happens with the next generation in your family, but uh, we'll stay tuned. So, Elizabeth, why did you become a lawyer? Well, I think I became a lawyer not envisioning myself going into a big firm and practicing corporate law, but I think I sort of went into law school with the altruistic notion of using my law degree to help people. Um, my grandfather um, was actually a lawyer in the Twin Cities, and he had a small practice um, that focused you know, on estates and wills and all of that stuff, but he was very much an advocate of social justice and was I think one of really the pioneers um, of a group of lawyers that pioneered pro bono work in the Twin Cities. And so he was really, in so many aspects of my life, an inspiration to me. Um, I would have followed him anywhere. Um, And I think a perfect example of that is he, over the summer, we would go up to their cottage in northern Wisconsin, and he would take the garbage in this big old green suburban to the garbage dump. And I... That was an activity I absolutely always wanted to be a part of. And so he just sort of instilled this this sense of responsibility in me and all of us, all of us in my family, really. And that kind of led and guided me into law school and, you know, made clear from the outset that no matter where I ended up in the legal field, that addressing the uh, justice gap was something that I wanted to be a part of. I love that family connection. What's your grandfather's name? I'm sure some listeners maybe knew him. <laughs> Harry Paulette. And he 
passed away almost 17 years ago. So I, he was he was not alive when I started law school, but he I think was a part of the formation of Ramsey County Legal Aid, which um, I understand is now like Southern Minnesota Legal Assistance. Um, so he was a wonderful man. Yeah, that's a terrific connection, and what an amazing legacy that you uh, are privileged to carry on. Really exciting. So you mentioned that you've sort of been career-long at McDermott. How did you get to the firm? It was really at Loyola, as I'm sure all law schools do. There was an on-campus interview process, and so I I threw my hat in the ring with a lot of different firms. Um, And as a young law student, it's really very difficult to kind of discern among big law firms because they all have similar practices and similar programs and say all of the same things about pro bono and diversity. And so it was hard to kind of discern which firm was the right fit for me. And I think for McDermott, what really stood out was the people that I interviewed with. I felt like I really connected with them. I felt that they had sort of a genuine interest in me um, and my joining the firm. And that absolutely played out over the course of the summer associate program. Um, You know, I was doing great work, both in the tax practice and in the pro bono field. And I just, you know, found myself surrounded by people that I really liked and wanted to continue to form relationships with. So there was really at the end of my summer, no question that this was where I wanted to be. That's a great message. We've spent a long chunk of our summer working with some of our interns who are rising two L's at law school, who are mm-hmm. doing their bid lists and about to do their OCI. And I think connecting with the people is a good message and a, a great way to navigate your, uh, your options and, and your decision making. How did you decide to become a tax lawyer? At the time I was at Loyola, like I said, and all 2Ls were required to take federal income tax. And I'm have a liberal arts background. I wanted nothing to do with this. I thought it was just outrageous funded by the requirement. But I ended up loving federal income tax and it was so much more, you know, the policy and it was just not at all what I envisioned tax to be. I envisioned tax to be sort of number crunching and accounting type work, which isn't really at all the type of tax practice that I had here at McDermott. Um, and so you know, my introduction to the tax class at Loyola. And then when I came to McDermott, I, because of that, ranked the tax practice as the one I wanted to start in, in our summer program rotation. And I just got really, really interesting work and kind of saw how how much tax fits into business and how much um, policy and theory and how much interesting stuff, I suppose, goes into tax. And it just suited my personality well. And again, I felt like I connected with the people in the tax group very well. And McDermott has a pretty widely recognized tax practice, so it was cool as a young law student to, you know, be sent out to do a research project on an issue and turn up articles that the partner who'd asked you to work on the project had written and realizing that you were working with national experts. So it was fun. That's cool. So in addition to an amazing and stellar tax practice. Could you tell us a little bit more about the firm generally, where the office is, how many lawyers, anything that you think would help give people background just in general about McDermott? Yeah, so McDermott is a, it's a, has a large international practice. We have offices across the U.S., Europe, and then we also have 
an office in Seoul, Korea, and a strategic alliance with a law firm in Shanghai. Um, so it's a very exciting place to be. It's a very big firm. There's over a thousand lawyers, um, but the way we sort of break ourselves into business units and practice groups um, makes it feel like a, a much smaller place. Um, so I think that everyone feels like they have a team that they work with and feels kind of connected and part of the family, which I think is, I imagine is difficult to accomplish in a, lawyer, in a, in a law firm of a thousand lawyers, but I think the firm does that really well. And we have you know, a wide range of practices um, and different types of lawyers. There's great diversity. It's just, there's just a lot to be proud of at McDermott. Um, and it's very much a full-service law firm. So you told us earlier that you were a tax lawyer and a partner in the tax group, and you'd been working about 10 years when you had the opportunity to become the firm's pro bono and community service partner. So tell me the story there. How did that all come about? So I believe it was in either 2007 or 2008, our firm, I was an associate in the tax group, and our firm hired our first full-time pro bono counsel at the time. It was Latanya Keith, and she's, I don't know if you know her, but she's wonderful. Yep, we do. Um, So I had the opportunity to work with her for many years and learned a lot from her and just admired what she was doing so much and sort of saw what she was doing and her ideas and her passion as a possible career path for me. Um, And Latanya left the firm in late 2014. And at the time, there was also Jocelyn Francoeur was the pro bono partner in charge of litigation. Um, And when Latanya left, Jocelyn sort of stepped in and filled both roles. And then about a year later, Jocelyn ended up leaving the firm as well. And the position opened up and I expressed my interest in the position to a few folks on the pro bono community, on the pro bono committee. Um, It just sort of went from there. I feel very fortunate to have ended up in this position because it sort of allows me to do something that I feel very passionate about at a place that I, that I love very much. And I know that these positions are somewhat rare, so I feel very lucky. That is a great perspective to have. And it's great when you are tired and frustrated and worn out and feel a little over-programmed to just keep saying, but I'm lucky. (laughs) I am very lucky. So it's a good bottom line. So we talked a little bit about your grandfather, but what else do you think sparked your passion for pro bono and access to justice? Are there any other triggers? Um, You know, I think, I guess a variety of things. So I, um, as again, ties back to my, my, my family, my Mom's family, so this was her, her Her dad was the grandpa that I spoke about. They, over the years, um, had a number of foster children and ended up adopting my Uncle Tim, who was much younger than my mom and her brothers and sisters. And he had a very challenging um, childhood before he was adopted, and he struggled very much in his life um, with his mental health and with his, and he, he, he struggled. He was in jail a few times and I sort of saw so much, so much good in him. And kind of, he, he helped me to see that, that everyone, there's reasons that, that, that people fall into the situations that they're in and that there's sort of good in everyone and everyone is, should have a chance for fairness and a chance for justice. Um, 
And, you know, then at Northwestern, I took um, a number of classes that had social justice components. And so it was sort of a, there's not one factor necessarily that I could point to, but just a kind of wide variety of exposures to issues and people in need. And it's such an interesting marriage of sort of the head, the heart, <laughs> the personal, the academic. It's it's really just a, a, a lot of sparks, and uh, it's fantastic that you shared that. Thanks so much. So let's talk about what you do now and your current role. How do you spend your time? What are your days like? So, yeah, now I'm um, the pro bono partner, so I'm focused full-time on our pro bono and community service program, and that it means a lot of different things. I think that there's an element of strategic planning. What does our pro bono program look like right now? What do we want it to look like and how can we grow it both in terms of the pro bono cases that we're doing, um, the issues that we're touching, and also kind of how pro bono fits into the long-term success of our firm. You know, what does how does pro bono fit into the law firm model? How is pro bono perceived and appreciated in the legal market. So there's all of that. And then there's the second piece, which is administering and overseeing all of the active pro bono matters that we have going on on a daily basis. And we have a lot of matters. And lawyers in all of our offices have active matters that they are working on every day. And so it's serving as a resource to help them move their cases through the process, answer questions, troubleshoot if tricky issues come up, and manage our intake process for all pro bono cases. So it's a lot. And then also, you know, how do we get more lawyers involved? Um, How do we train our young associates? How do we sort of engender a culture of pro bono at the firm? And I think over the last, you know, since LaTanya joined the firm, there's been just great strides in terms of how we as a firm view pro bono, how it's sort of intrinsic to everything that we do. And so it's a little bit of all of that, I suppose. And more. If, is there anything that you wish and you more. could? Yeah, of course. Is there anything that you wish you could be doing, sort of if only you had more time? It kind of never makes it to the top of the to-do list. You know, I wish that I had, I, I do wish that I had more time to dedicate to the strategic endeavors because I think, you know, when things get busy on the day-to-day, those are the first things to sort of fall back on the to-do list. Um, And we do have a huge pro bono program with many lawyers participating. And so often the day-to-day work comes up and takes precedence over some of the longer-term stuff. So if there were more hours in a day, I would love to spend more time on the strategic planning and more time, you know, out in our communities getting to know the legal aid organizations and the various players in the community better. Yeah, all I of do that. as much of that as I can, but I would love to be able to do more. Yeah, that's great. All of it takes time. So you mentioned that you're sort of lucky to be in the position that you're in. What do you enjoy most about your work leading the firm's pro bono program? For me, the best part is really just working with our lawyers. I, I work with and know so many more people at the firm than I did when I was in the tax practice. And I think that I find myself really inspired by our lawyers and, you know, the hearts that, that so many of them have and their real interest in, in doing good and their dedication to their pro bono clients, even if it means staying up all night because they're busy with their other work. And I think that so much of the challenges that we've faced with the justice gap 
over the last two years I've been in this role, and particularly in the last six or seven months, I think that there have been a lot that has come up and sort of seeing my colleagues and the way that they react to some of these situations and their um, willingness to stand up to what they see as injustice is really inspiring. And so I feel lucky that I get to see sort of the good in humanity every day. That's probably the best part for me. Especially in these times. That's that's a fantastic upside. Um, what, do you, what do you see as your greatest challenges or what you struggle with the most? It's a good question. I think that what I probably struggle with the most is sort of the psychology behind why people do pro bono. And, you know, with a thousand lawyers, there are, I think, a lot of different motivating factors and reasons and issues and anxiety and all sorts of things that come along with with doing pro bono, building a pro bono practice. And so trying to figure out how to connect with as many people as possible and motivate as many people as possible is it's a it's a good challenge but it's a challenge for sure. It's interesting that you identified that as a challenge because as you mentioned and I I sort of we identified this in preparing for our chat today that the firm has really had a lot of success over the past few years at uh, increasing attorney participation rates and just their whole pro bono program and you talked about the evolution over the last mm-hmm. few years. And so I was curious, you know, how how you think you've done that, what you found, and you talked about there are a lot of different motivations for why people want to do pro bono, but what have you found works to incentivize, encourage your lawyers? What are, what are some of the options or some of the tricks of your trade that you <laughs> see gets people in the game and, and keeps them coming back for more? I think that the often the biggest hurdle is getting people in the game. Um, and I think once people are in the game, they almost everyone sort of very quickly sees how gratifying this work can be, how important it is, and sort of how many injustices people without um, access to counsel face. And I think one way that we've been able to accomplish the breadth of our um, lawyer involvement has been developing a program that kind of recognizes that pro bono looks different for everyone. Um, There are different things that motivate people, um, and there are different things that people want to do. There are some people, I think, who do pro bono work to do something a little bit different um, outside of the box from what they're doing in their day-to-day work. There are others who feel very strongly that they don't want to stray from their comfort zone but want to find a way to give back that fits sort of neatly into their day-to-day practice where they feel like they have the requisite expertise and don't need to stretch. Um, And, you know, in terms of basic motivating factors, reasons to get involved, and I don't think that this is any secret, but I think that firms giving billable hour credit um, for pro bono time has been, it's been important here, and I think that it has been important at many of our peer firms, and I think that that's sort of the industry trend to do that, and it helps a lot. Yeah, at least you're not disincentivized for your pro bono work so and time, so for exactly. sure. Yeah, yeah. And, what um, else? and I think, you know, so many lawyers are type A personalities that I think messaging from the top is really important and making sure that our lawyers understand that this is something that our management committee wants and expects them to be doing, that their practice group leaders want and expect them to be doing. And so we've had a lot of conversations and outreach and programming over the years to 
speak with those in, in the leadership roles, help them shape their messages and communicate their messages to the people that they're leading. And so we've, I and my predecessors have been very lucky in having a very supportive firm management in, in that messaging from the top. Oh, so leadership support and um, public and visible messaging is so important. And it's a great segue to something that I wanted to bring up because I thought this was just such an elegant way to put it. Um, Ira Coleman, the chairman of the firm, has written, or maybe you wrote for him as as we're talking, um, (laughs) that helping others, improving our communities, and empowering those who otherwise have no voice is our shared commitment. This is who we are. That's a really powerful statement. And I was hoping you could tell us what these values mean to you and how they inform your leadership of the pro bono program. Sure. Um, You know, I think that we, and I think lawyers as an industry in general, we find ourselves with sort of unique tools and a unique ability to help people who don't know what to say to advocate for themselves, where to go to advocate for themselves, or really what they need to be doing. Um, And there are a number of organizations and types of cases that we work with where, you know, if an individual goes into court or goes in before an administrative hearing officer and is unrepresented, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the time they're going to lose, where those statistics almost flip where they are represented. Um, And you know, for me, it's just sort of being a resource, recognizing that we're in a position of great privilege and being a resource for people who don't otherwise have a voice. And I think it takes so many different forms and shapes. And I, I think having, Ira's been in his role for about seven months now and having watched him um, lead and act and manage his own practice, I think that that very much comes from the heart from him. And so we feel lucky to have him as a leader. Let's talk a little bit about the breadth of the program and um, share some examples. So one area of your pro bono docket that the firm has gotten a lot of attention for and has done amazing work is the firm's involvement with LGBT-related pro bono efforts. It's a really crowded marketplace of pro bono opportunities. Tell me a little bit about why the firm got involved in this area and some examples of the types of matters that you all have handled. Sure. Um, I think that we are very fortunate, and again, this goes to sort of leadership, we're very fortunate to have a number of partners at the firm, um, Lisa Linsky and Todd Solomon among them, who took an interest in these issues Pretty early on, I think, before a lot of attention was focused on the issue and a lot of firms were getting involved. Um, So we've been involved in these issues for years and years, Um, and that sort of afforded us an opportunity to take on really great, interesting matters. Um, And I'll give you a few examples, and some are, I'll give you a couple of large systematic examples as well as... um, you know, individual representation matters. Um, We've done a lot of work with the Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C. They have a mission of sort of archive activism, I think is how they describe it. And so their goal has been sort of taking um, an interest in discovering records and a history of animus against LGBT individuals in the federal government. And so that's involved FOIA requests, 
I think there's an action pending before the Department of Justice right now to sort of uncover all of this history that would otherwise be hidden. Um, and there have a lot, there's a lot of ways that that history has been used. One really tangible way that the firm was involved in, in utilizing that history was writing an amicus brief in the marriage cases before the Supreme Court, um, sort of presenting very clearly and eloquently to the Supreme Court that there was a strong you know, history of discrimination um, in the LGBT community at the hands of the federal government. Uh, so that's a project that we are very, very proud of. Um, and we continue to work with um, the Mattachine Society today to continue to, to the process of uncovering the records. Um, another example, we've developed somewhat of a, I guess, a specialty in working with the National Immigrant Justice Center and other referral partners in representing LGBT individuals seeking asylum in the U.S. Um, we've had a number of great successes there as well. And then also in, in enforcing the civil rights of LGBT individuals, whether it's in the workplace, in prison, um, a really wide range of, of projects that we're working on. Another civil rights area where the firm has done very original and also attention-grabbing work is in its pro bono work to advance the rights of Sikh Americans. Could you tell us a little bit about those matters? Yes, absolutely. So we have a partner in D.C., Amandi, who is one of the founders of the Sikh Coalition, and he has spearheaded this effort for, for many years. This is um, We've had great successes over the last couple of years, but this has really been the culmination, I think, of over eight years of dedication and advocacy to these, to these causes. Um, so I think we started working with, with the Sikh Coalition back in 2009, and when we started, the work was seeking individual exemptions on behalf of Sikh Americans who were looking to serve in the U.S. military while maintaining their articles of faith. Um, and so we've had, we had a variety of individual successes and individual accommodations. Um, over the years, they continued to come up, and we, in 2015 and 2016, had several successful federal lawsuits um, and ultimately, this is a, a, a great victory. The U.S. Army changed its rules and will make it much easier both for Sikh Americans and for other religions to serve in the U.S. military while maintaining their articles of faith. So it's a it's a almost decade-long campaign that ended up very favorably for us, and I think that it's been just a fabulous opportunity for us as a firm. Um, I think it's lent itself to great experience, great pro bono work, great connections. Um, it, it's just been all around a really fabulous experience. And Amon is just, you know, an inspiration to all of us. He's been uniquely dedicated to all of this and is really a, a leader for our lawyers. That's amazing and inspiring. Thank you. Elizabeth, could you share some additional examples of pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to you, maybe ones that you've worked on or just ones that you've been associated with at the firm that, for whatever reason, speak to you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was in law school. I was a part of the child law clinic at Loyola, um, and so really developed a particular interest in advocating for children and their families. And while I, as I said, I've been in the tax practice, I, a lot of my pro bono work has focused on children and families. Um, and there are a few cases that have stood out to me over the years. Um, one was an, 
one example is a special education case. Um, probably, gosh, seven or eight years ago, maybe Todd Solomon and I represented um, an individual. She was going into sixth grade, um, and she was reading at only a second grade level. Although she was getting A's and B's in all of her classes, and her teachers, you know, were talking about what a wonderful student she is. Um, her mom was just very worried that something wasn't quite right, and her daughter, Frankie, was developing a lot of anxiety about going to school, and things just really weren't going well, but the school district was telling mom, everything's fine, she's a great student, no problems here. And so we came in, we stepped in, and we were able to advocate for her to be placed at a therapeutic day school for children with learning disabilities and anxiety issues, um, and Frankie has really flourished there. Um, we keep in touch with her family, and she's just really come out of her shell, and she's confident and smart and quite successful, and it's it's been really neat. Um, I was able to go to her eighth grade graduation from the therapeutic day school, and Todd actually was, I was unable to make it, but Todd actually went to her high school graduation just a couple of weeks ago, and it's just been really neat to see how much she's changed and how much she's grown up and to think that we had some small role in that is is very gratifying. Or large role. I mean, I think it's really a great, great, great example of saving a life. I mean, look at the difference you've made to, to that person and that family. It's amazing. Any others? Yeah, there are a few others that have really resonated with me. One is a, we worked for a long time with a little, a little, well, I guess not little, a, a teenage girl who lived in Chicago with her mother, and she had an estranged father who was pushing very hard for visitation with her, and she was very opposed to the visitation for a lot of reasons. Um, and as her mother and father were locked in a pretty heated dispute over this visitation in circuit court in Cook County, and we were appointed along with a professor from the Loyola Child Law Clinic who I'd worked with to serve as the child representative, which was really um, it's a lawyer for the child. Um, and it's sort of an interesting role because you kind of blend the acting as an advocate for the child and the child's wishes versus taking into account the best interest of the child, um, which for an older child um, can be challenging because sometimes and this really wasn't the case here, but sometimes, you know, the best interest of the child and their wishes don't align. But here, you know, as we worked through the case and got to know everyone involved, it became fairly apparent that the dad was pretty psychologically abusive, and the daughter was very afraid of any interaction with him, and in particular, you know, long summer visits. And so we had a full a full trial in court, um, which was an interesting experience for me in a number of ways, um, including the fact that both of the parents were representing themselves pro se, so we were the only lawyers. Yeah. Um, and we were able to secure an order that ended visitation with between the father and the daughter, which is not something that the courts grant very readily and is not something that, um, you know, under regular circumstances would be something that, um, I would be excited about achieving, but just sort of seeing the weight that it took off of this this child's shoulders and how she felt just so much more free and secure that she could continue her life with her mom, where she had a, a very close relationship with her mom, was was really rewarding. Yeah. 
It's really powerful. I, I think it's an amazing testament to what a difference pro bono lawyers can make, you know, in, in, in people's lives. Yeah, I wish it wasn't the case, but it's sort of amazing how much of a difference having an advocate by your side makes. Um, I don't know what the solution is other than making more advocates available, but it, it does make sort of a stark difference. So tell us about something in the works. What's on the horizon for the pro bono program at the firm? I was fortunate that I was able to go and visit a number of our European offices last month. And one thing we're looking to do is really increase the ways that we can collaborate internationally with our our, our colleagues in Europe and in Asia on pro bono projects. Um, And one project that we're very excited to be working with, um, we're working with the UN Sustainable Growth Development Fund on a report emphasizing the importance of the rule of law in developing, you know, stable successful economies. And it's it's been fascinating so far. Um, and this is something that we have lawyers both in the U.S. and in our European offices working on. And we, I think, very much want to kind of continue that trend, find similar projects where we can bring our lawyers together to work on global issues. Yeah, that's fantastic. We love cross-office collaboration. We love getting our international lawyers involved. So we'll stay tuned. I'll look forward to an update. <laughs> and what else? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I think that, and this has been very heartening for me to see that the in-house corporate world is beginning or continuing to pay attention to what law firms are doing in the pro bono sphere, um, both from the perspective how how they as corporate in-house groups can get further involved in the pro bono world and also just in the same way that, that, that corporations pay attention to diversity. We're starting to get a lot of questions in RFPs about our pro bono work and not necessarily the generalized, do you do pro bono work, what are your total hours, but, you know, do you do pro bono work, um, what have the trends been? Who on the team that you're pitching that I work with has done pro bono and what have they done? So they're really, I've seen sort of a number of companies drilling down on, on what they want to know about pro bono work. And that's exciting for me because I think it just increases the importance of what we're doing and increases the opportunities for us to work side by side with our client on pro bono causes. I think it's a really neat, genuine way to kind of foster relationships and develop business in a way that is really sort of genuine and authentic and not, I suppose, salesy. Yeah. And um, it really is a driver when business depends on it, <laughs> right? And and it's, right. as you mentioned, it's in the RFP. It's when, you know, work is at issue, billable, profits, revenue, commercial work is at issue. And it's not just sort of tokenism, as you said, do you do pro bono, but we're really moving beyond that to what are the pro bono projects that this team would work on, you know, and, and right. uh, it's a great, it's a great driver of uh, pro bono commitment and performance. And, and it's an interesting yeah. development. Yep. And I think going back to, you know, talking about what motivates people to do pro bono, I think that this is a new and sort of up-and-coming factor that may start to motivate more people who either haven't been particularly interested or involved or to further motivate people who have already sort of 
dip their toes in the water and see how valuable it can be. Yeah, and I think people who are most moved by elements of the quote-unquote business case for pro bono, this is sort of the the be-all and end-all. I mean, hearing business is depending on it, so it's, <laughs> it's a kind of concrete embodiment of the business case for pro bono. You don't want to have to say, nope, nothing. <laughs> we have nothing to put in this right, section. Yeah. Skip and A. That's not effective. (laughs) So, Elizabeth, if you had a magic wand, what would you change about access to justice or law firm pro bono? That's a very good question. Well, I wish that there weren't such a large access to justice gap, I suppose. And I think a very important piece of that is funding for legal services, a hot button issue over the last few months. And there have been proposals to defund and radically cut the funding for Legal Services Corporation, which funds so many of our our legal aid partners. I think, and I, I can't overstate for a lawyer at a law firm doing pro bono how critical our legal aid partners are. They refer cases to us, they screen cases, and they have the sort of day-to-day expertise that we just don't and, and don't have the capacity necessarily to develop. And so being able to work side-by-side side with our legal aid partners is just critical. It, it allows us to provide the strength of representation that we're able to because we can rely on them for their expertise. And so I suppose if I had a really big magic wand, my my first stroke would be dramatically increasing the funding for legal aid, because I think as legal aid expands and brings more lawyers into their fold, that increases their ability to leverage pro bono lawyers and makes it much easier for law firms to be able to develop strong, functioning pro bono programs. And then I think, you know, within law firms, just continuing to message to the leaders of law firms that this is this is important and that their communications and support of the program really do motivate people. Um, and I think that we're at a point where we, as a law firm community, have a number of great, you know, management committees and heads of the firm. And I think the messaging is strong, but I think that any further development or growth in that is only a positive. So we talked earlier about your experience as a law student, going through OCI, being a summer associate, joining the firm. What advice do you have for law students or lawyers who are just starting their careers? I think I have two big pieces of advice, I suppose. And the first is really just in terms, and I sort of touched on this, but I think in terms of, of choosing a firm, Choosing a firm where you feel comfortable with the people is just critical. You're going to spend a lot of time at work and spend a lot of time with your colleagues and enjoying their company and trusting them and feeling motivated by them is really important. Um, and then I think in terms of pro bono, I wouldn't be shy about you know displaying an interest in pro bono from the outset. I think that starting out as you're sort of developing your work habits and understanding how you manage, I guess, your plate, for lack of a better term. Figuring out how to incorporate pro bono early on is a good thing. Um, I think it's a good thing because it helps you see and develop the habits that you need to make that something that's sustainable throughout your career. And because I think pro bono is a great way to develop skills um, early in your career in a way that you might not otherwise be able to until much later in your career. And I think for a litigation person, for example, you'll be in court and you'll be taking depositions 
on pro bono cases years earlier than you would be on paying cases. And it's also just a great way to show your leadership and kind of stand out in the firm among many really talented peers. And so, yeah, I think getting involved early on, if it's something that's of interest to you, is a great idea and something I would highly encourage. Wonderful advice. And I think... Yeah, go ahead. Um, I guess my last piece of advice is that if there's sort of pro bono work that you're interested in that you don't see your firm is doing, I would reach out to the pro bono leader at your firm and talk about it because I think from my perspective, we're almost always excited about growing the scope of what we're doing. Oh, that's perfect. And don't be scared. I mean, the worst thing that they say is, yeah. not this week, but we'll get it done. You know, we'll figure it out or we'll tweak it a little and make it viable. So, yes, don't be scared to do that. Exactly. You should always talk to the pro bono responsible person at your firm. They're, they're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so, Elizabeth, let's wind down with this. Who's your pro bono role model? Feel free to pick more than one and why. Um, well, I think Todd Solomon is absolutely one of my pro bono role models. Um, he very much, you know, I think even when I was a summer associate, got me involved in pro bono. And he's been sort of a steadfast supporter of our pro bono program in, you know, a number of different capacities. And when I first joined the firm, he was the co-chair in Chicago, filled that role for a number of years. He then became the firm-wide chair of pro bono and has done that for a number of years. And I think... The thing that sort of inspires and motivates me the most is that he's a very busy lawyer in his billable practice, and he has a number of leadership roles in our pro bono program, in his practice group, and in spite of all of this, he still finds time to take on, you know, direct representation of pro bono clients. He, it seems by all accounts, would do anything for his pro bono clients and has, you know, a number of clients that he keeps in touch with and has done so for years following the end of our work on those pro bono matters. And the little girl, Frankie, who we represented in a special education case is, you know, just one of many examples where I think the clients almost consider Todd to be part of their family. And so he was a great role model for me when I was, you know, an associate and a partner in our tax group as to how to balance that and fit that in. And he's been a great role model as a leader as well. We are big fans of Todd's, too, so please send our regards. And um, I will. We're fans of yours. You're amazing. Thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been so much fun and such a pleasure. It's been a lot of fun for me, too. And we are at McDermott, and I personally, we're big fans of PBIs. An enthusiastic thank you to Elizabeth for joining us today, and we hope to have you back again before too long. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave a rating and a review. Leave some stars, write some comments. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Hey listeners, quick reminder that the PBI annual dinner is rapidly approaching. The event will be in New York City on Thursday night, September 28th at the amazing Gotham Hall. More information can be found on the web at probonoinst.org or call Kelly Simon at 202-729-6691. 
We're grateful to all of our generous sponsors and supporters. Hey, Podcast Pals, we'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. For all of us here at PBI, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.